Well, Zechariah chapter 5. We are in the middle of all of these dreams of Zechariah, or visions as they're called, dreams or visions and visions. And um, some of these have gotten a little out there and you're tempted to think maybe you just had a little too much spicy food the night before. Uh, but actually, when you start comparing it to the rest of the Bible, you realize there's all kinds of correlations. We're gonna see that tonight. The Zechariah says some kind of wild things and you think, man, he's a little on the crazy side, except for this. His prophecies match up with so many of the other prophecies of the Bible and you start to see uh, them make more sense. And I love that about Zechariah. If we just had the book of Zechariah and that's all we had, I'd be lost. Um, I, I wouldn't know what to do with half of this stuff and just say, man, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. And tonight we're gonna see these stork-like angels that are gonna fly with a basket and uh, go to Shinar. What does that mean? Well, um, actually, we know what it means because uh, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And that helps us understand the scriptures. So we'll see that tonight. But I love this book. Um, a lot to learn from, from these visions, both uh, on a historical level, but also on a prophetic level. And we've seen that thus far. We've, we've seen him talk about the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, and he's gonna get into more and more of that stuff the deeper we get into the book. Um, so here in Zechariah 5, you know, just to review a little bit of the visions that we've covered. If you remember, uh, we saw vision number one, the rider and the myrtle tree, um, and, uh, or the myrtle trees, I should say. We saw the four horns with the craftsmen or the, the, you know, the demolition men, remember those guys? And the four horns are these authorities and powers that have been over Israel and God's gonna send the hammer. Uh, to come and crush these nations. And we saw the measuring line vision. We saw God's courtroom with, uh, you know, uh, Joshua, the high priest, being uh, standing before the throne of God, the courtroom of heaven. Um, we saw then last week, um, last Wednesday night, we saw vision number five, the olive trees and the candlesticks. Um, and I kind of left us off uh, with that sort of uh, the the the, the strange vision of the olive trees and the candlesticks, but I, we, we figured out who those uh, two olive trees are and, and it, it would be a little hard. And we, we covered this again and, and I kind of left you hanging. What's the significance of this, uh, these, two, these two olive trees? And, and we showed last week, and I wanna kind of pick up where we left off. Um, we showed last time that the olive trees represented two uh, possible, or three possible options. Maybe all of them are true but for sure one of them is true. That's kind of where we left it. And if you remember the, the first thing we saw was here uh, the, the some symbology uh, or some symbolic, symbolically, uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the first one we talked about. And that's more of a personal application that the Holy Spirit is always kind of a type of the, of, or pictured by the oil. Uh, and the, the olive trees, remember the oil was continually flowing from the olive trees through the pipes into the candles, which were the, you know, we're supposed to be like Jesus, the light of the world. So the oil fills the light of the world, if you would. And we talked about how this, uh, just personally, symbolically, it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit, these two trees. Another one we floated uh, is um, the two, um, you know, historical figures of this story, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel would be the one building the temple and they needed a fresh filling of the spirit. And we talked about how historically these two trees could mean uh, that, that those two guys are gonna be filled with the spirit to do the job of rebuilding and restoring worship in Jerusalem. We talked about that. Those are the ones that are possibles, but the one that's for sure 
<laughs> which is funny. When I read it last week, you know, you can kind of sense this is the one that seems most unlikely. I, I remember I said, I think it's the two witnesses of the book of Revelation. And, um, and uh, you're probably thinking in your mind, I don't know about that. That's a stretch, two olive trees and oil and uh, witnesses. The only reason we said that, if you remember in our story there in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 11, we talked, we read, uh, we turned there and it says, and the two olive trees basically of Zechariah were the two witnesses. So you're like, oh, I guess that's for sure. Uh, now, now you say, Brett, what's the big deal of that? The reason I kind of left us hanging and saying, what's the significance of that? Um, is actually, this is one of the proof positives that Zechariah is to be taken prophetically in futuristic terms. And the reason that's important is there's so many people out there that, you know, Christian churches, and again, this is one of those in-house debates and it shouldn't be contentious. Um, it tends to be more and more contentious, I've noticed um, as the years have gone by. But but um, there's so many people say all of prophecy has been fulfilled. Um, you know, you Bible prophecy people doing prophecy updates. Like there's a real sort of a, a shunning of, of that practice today, which is interesting. Although it fulfills prophecy in and of itself. You know, an hour when you think not, that's when the Lord's coming. Um, and also those who mock and say, where's the promise of his coming? It's always been the same. Well, that's another promise that we're in the last days. And, um, but, um, but I love that this, this little thing about the olive trees because of our text in Revelation 11, it says those two olive trees are the two witnesses of the tribulation period. That's in the future, that's yet to happen. These two witnesses, I believe it's possible it's Moses and Elijah, by the way. Um, and there's a possibility it could be you know, Moses and Enoch, but uh, you know, people wonder about that. But it's gonna be two prophets from the Old Testament uh, that are gonna be there in the tribulation period. And, and remember the fire comes out of their mouth and all this stuff, it's gonna be an amazing part of the tribulation period. Um, but that gives us license to look at the book of Zechariah and not just say, oh, it's all been, a, you know, there's, there's people that say, all oh, these Bible prophecies have been fulfilled in AD 70. Um, you know, the preterists and the amillennialists out there, all the Catholic church is kind of amillennial, if you didn't know that. Um, they don't really believe in a literal kingdom. They don't believe in, um, you know, any really prophecies of the Bible. They don't, that's why they don't look at Israel. They think God's done with Israel and they don't look at it as anything sp special. Uh, in fact, if anything, the Vatican is sort of anti-Israel and you'll see that, it's very clear. They're always talking about dividing Jerusalem and, and um, there's all kinds of, um, you know, sentiment to divide Jerusalem and give it to the Palestinians and stuff. It's totally not biblical, but it has to do with their replacement theology and, and uh, the preterism or the, um, or the um, amillennial view. We are premillennial uh, at Athey Creek and we believe in a pre-trib rapture, that there's a very clear biblical order of events and we take the Bible very literally. That's, that's one thing we do. And um, the preterist kind of says everything is figurative. Now, if you're a preterist, um, one of my favorite preterists, preterists by the way, was R.C. Sproul. I liked R.C. Sproul, he was an amazing dude. Um, apologetics, man, he was second to none. I loved his defense of the gospel and of the word. It's just unfortunate because he, he kind of refused to believe the Bible prophecy stuff. Um, and so he was, he was kind of one of these more preterist guys and took things more figuratively. But you, you know, it's funny, you'll, you'll never hear those guys, even my favorite preterists, they won't teach through the Bible. They won't teach those sections of scripture um, that are uh, prophetic because it's too embarrassing to try to uh, explain all the figurative meanings of all the crazy stuff that's going on. The book of Zechariah would be a hard book to teach if you're a preterist because the, the stork and the ladies in a basket 
um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, all this stuff, the olive trees and God's courtroom and all this stuff, there would be no future significance. There'd be no way to see that, how it applies to the future and the world. And, and it would make it quite tedious, I'm gonna just say, to study. But when you see the connections with the book of Revelation, with the book of Daniel, the book of Isaiah, and you see the dots connected, it, it makes the whole thing come to life in a, in a pretty powerful and beautiful way. So don't get me wrong, I, I have good friends that are preterists and even amillennialists. Um, I just know that when they get raptured, they're gonna change their notes. And I'm sure R.C. Sproul is a pre-tribber now in heaven. Um, welcome to the family, I would say, to, uh, <laughs> but, but all that to say, uh, that, that's kind of a, some stuff on that. So we have license to see in the book of Zechariah future events in prophecy because of this, this very clear uh, uh, line with the two olive trees being the two witnesses. Are you guys good with that? Do you understand what I'm saying there? So that's important as we proceed. Uh, it gives us a hint that we should not look at the book of Zechariah simply historically, but prophetically. Uh, and, and by the way, that places his words that we just read last week right there in the tribulation period, the seven year period that's coming. Um, and Zechariah's talking about that period. Uh, you know, thousands of years ago, he's talking about that period that's still yet to come. So that's interesting. Well, all that to say, let's take a look here at Zechariah chapter five. It says in verse one, then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold, a flying roll. You say, Brett, what in the world is a flying roll? Well, I brought a picture of it uh, with me tonight. There's a flying <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I'm sorry. That's, that's, I, I just totally discredited myself. No, um, the, the idea is not a roll, but a scroll, okay? Uh, a flying scroll. Uh, now this is already weird enough, wouldn't you say? A flying scroll, that, that's an image that you're like, you don't see that every day. Um, but that's, that's this next vision, vision number six, the flying scroll. And it's basically um, Zechariah uh, 5, verses one through four. So what's this, this whole uh, thing about this flying scroll? Um, now, by the way, um, uh, you know, scrolls uh, are uh, something that we don't handle anymore. So uh, a lot of us, especially here in America, we don't really talk about scrolls, but in Israel, they still handle scrolls. It's still a thing. And they, uh, if you go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, you'll see these scrolls. In fact, we brought some pictures. Uh, whenever we go uh, to the Western Wall, um, you can see what, what's going on here is probably a bar mitzvah. And the little kid there is uh, turning into, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. They always carry the big roll of scrolls of the Torah. And they bring them in in these big rolls. And there's a, there's a line there. The fence is the court of the women and then the other side is the court of the men. So when a little boy is uh, you know, going through that party, the women have to stay on one side of the fence and the, the men on the other. So that's what's going on here. But, but you'll see them dancing and celebrating as they're, they're marching into the, the, you know, the, near the Temple Mount to do the bat mitzvah. And, um, and um, all that to say, they carry these big scrolls and, and um, you'll see them often in these canisters. And when you go into some of these lower areas below the um, Temple Mount, where the rabbis study, you still see these canisters, these fancy uh, ornate canisters. They, they crack them open and you'll see the scrolls still in there. And they kind of have these little spindle, like toilet paper roll kind of things, uh, where you just kind of roll them and you can read them, read them and roll them, roll them and read them. Now. These scrolls, I want to point out, um, only have printing on one side, 
because it'd be really awkward to have to try to figure out how to read one with both sides printing, right? I mean, you think about the math of that, keep that in mind, because that's kind of an interesting thing. So all this to say, we've got this vision of the flying, this flying scroll. Now, um, uh, the, the, the King James says roll, but, um, but uh, it really is a scroll, that's the idea. Um, now, there's another word here when it says, um, behold. Um, then I turned my, lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a fly. Whenever you see that in the Bible, don't just kind of blow by behold. Um, it's called a demonstrative interjection. Uh, and it's basically a word that's expressing passion or sudden emotion used to point something out. Um, like we would say, wow, look, look. That's the way we would do it they, in the Bible times. If you wanted somebody to see something impressive, look, you'd say, behold, uh, I bring you tidings of great joy or, or whatever. So don't just blow by that word behold when you read it in the Bible. It actually is a word that, that really is an expressive, uh, emotional, energetic word that's making, don't just go, huh, huh, uh, scroll in the Bible. Wow, okay, no. We gotta pep up, step up, and look at the scroll as something that's important. And it is interesting in that it's a flying scroll. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, when you come to this idea of flying, the idea is active, present energy, the Hebrew word there, uh, flying, but also active and energetic is, and living even. Uh, something that's inanimate sort of becomes living or moving, um, the scroll. Um, and uh, and um, how thankful I am for books now. Books are so much easier to handle, by the way, and uh, thankful for that. Um, but all that to say, the, um, these, the, the scrolls, um, there's different kinds of scrolls throughout history, and this one here is very unique for several reasons. And let's, let's take a look in verse two, uh, what those things are. It says, and he said to me, what seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying scroll, the length thereof is 20 cubits and the breadth thereof is 10 cubits. So right there for you Bible students, you're like, wait a minute, this, this is interesting. This is a massive scroll, it's huge. But how huge is it? Well, this, these dimensions uh, should be somewhat familiar. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's about 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. A, a cubit uh, is a unit of measure in Bible times. It's a, from your tip of your fingers to your elbow. It's about an 18 inch average length. And that's one of the biblical measurements. So, so you got this 18 inches, but, um, but really it's about 30 feet by 15 feet uh, in size. So it's a huge honking scroll. Um, now, those, those dimensions, if you're a Bible student, that's kind of an interesting dimension. Did you know that's the same dimension of the holy place in the tabernacle? Kind of interesting. Now, what's the holy place? Now, the holy of holies, we know, is that place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that was a little smaller space in the tabernacle or in the temple. But in, what was the holy place all about? Well, it, it, it's a little bit where Jesus meets humanity. You gotta remember this. The tabernacle itself is a picture of Christ. Um, that's one of the great things. When we went through the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle, um, there in the book of Exodus and what have you, we saw what a beautiful picture the tabernacle is of Christ. And, um, and um, we've, we've got that notion throughout the Bible. Um, but what's interesting is um, what is the scroll and why has it got the same dimensions as the holy place? Do you remember there's three main things in the holy place? When you walk into the holy place, well, let me put up a little map here so you guys can kind of remember. This is stuff we covered. But um, the, the, the smaller square room there, of course, is the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant 
would sit and um, this, this tent of meeting. Um, uh, but there were three main implements there in that 10 by 20 uh, holy place. Um, um, on the you know, one side, the, as you walked into the right side, you'd see the table of showbread. And that's where the bread was stored. Uh, that was, um, it was, it was a, a, you know, the Bible talks about provision. Um, Jesus said, um, give us this day our daily bread. But also Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is the provision that we need. Um, the, the little uh, altar on the inside was called the altar of incense. And it's where the incense would ascend up into heaven. Incense was a type of prayer. And as it turns out, Jesus is the one who ever lives to make intercession for you and me. So we got the bread of life, Jesus. We got intercession, Jesus. But then you got the lampstand that we talked about last week, um, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Remember the center post of the lampstand, Jesus. And then I am the vine, you are the branches. And we get to be, as Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you will be lights in this world. So everything about this holy place points to Jesus, just like the whole tabernacle, if you do a whole study of the tabernacle. Um, but the holy place does an interesting thing. It connects Jesus with humanity. Um, Jesus, you know, everything he is, uh, you see it, the light of the world, the one who intercedes on behalf of us, the bread of life, our provision, and that's this holy place. So it's, it's kind of cool. It's the same dimensions as that. You say, well, how are you, how are you connecting a scroll um, with the holy place? The uh, only connection so far that we have is that the scroll is the same dimensions of the holy place. That's an interesting freebie for you. Um, but uh, there, I think there's a place where we see more and more. Uh, by the way, um, it's also the exact dimensions of Solomon's porch, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, but I'll leave you Bible scholars to uh, toss that one around. That's kind of an interesting implication in and of itself. But, um, but the, the, the tabernacle speaks of Christ. But Christ also is linked not only to being pictured by the uh, tabernacle, but also the word of God. Um, You know, this is such an important thing uh, for us to see. And it's a little bit mysterious, especially if you're new to Christianity, you'll think, what are you talking about? But um, the, the Bible's full of mystery. And one of the great things is the Bible says of itself that the word of God is Jesus. And Jesus is the word. Um, that's John chapter one, verse one, of course, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What's that saying? The word was before even the world existed. That's God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then later on in John chapter one, verse 14, it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, um, if you uh, think about that, the word dwelt is an interesting word. Uh, the, the, um, the Greek word used there in John 1.14 is literally tabernacled. Uh, you could almost say, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, dwelt, uh, that's a, a tabernacle was a dwelling place. That's why the word dwelt was put there. But, but tabernacled among us, kind of interesting. Um, and so, you know, we've got this thing about the word of God being Jesus, the word was made flesh. See, in John 1, 1, you have kind of the concept of God, God the Father being the word. But then you say, wait, the word was, was then made flesh. Remember the word was God in chapter one, verse one of John. But now the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Who is that? Well, that's Jesus. And he's the one who tabernacled among us. Um, so suddenly we've got this interesting connection um, that we're already seeing with these dimensions. We got a scroll, which is the word, 
We've got a tabernacle dimension. And then John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word tabernacled and dwelt among us. Now you say, but it's a living scroll. Oh, isn't that interesting? Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is quick or living. Some of your translations say, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing and thunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Uh, I love this scripture, uh, and especially for you Wednesday nighters, um, haven't you found this to be true? The word of God is in fact living and powerful. It's not just some literature book that we're going through, or a book of old stories. There's, there's a dynamic nature to God's word that's living, and it's exacting, and it's a two-edged sword. It's quick and powerful. Keep the sword imagery in your mind, because later on that's gonna come in handy. But back to the vision of the flying scroll. Uh, so um, what does the flying scroll do? Um, the same thing the Bible does for us today. Um, the Bible um, uh, is sort of a self-proclamation. It's, remember how the Bible says of itself, it's like a mirror and the person who looks in the Bible and then goes away and still does his old sinful stuff. He's like the guy who looks into a mirror and sees stuff on his face and then he walks away and forgets that he, that he has uh, you know, mustard on his mustache. Um, and he walks away with forgetting. That's, that's the person who doesn't uh, see the, the, the mirror of the word. And so we see ourselves as sinful people. One of the things the word does, the sword, is it reveals our sinfulness. It's the mirror that shows us um, how flawed we really are. Um, so what is the scroll gonna do? Let's read on in verse three. Then said he unto me, this is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side, according to it. And every one that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side, according to it. Verse four, I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of, the, of his house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Now, this is one of those things, if you're new to the Bible, I gotta admit, you're gonna be like, wow, this is wacko. What's this scroll doing? And why are we burning stones? And what's going on here? Uh, and, and I understand. But this is where connecting the dots is kind of fun. Um, you know, um, by the way, notice the angel keeps asking, do you understand what this is? Uh, does that remind you of another book of the Bible where the, there's always the asking of questions to someone who doesn't know the answers? Huh? Book of Revelation does the same thing. Who are these arrayed in fine white linen? And John's like, I don't know, you know. Remember the whole thing? Like, like I love this. By the way, this is a technique that you and I should use. Because um, sometimes people don't even know the right questions to ask, but you can offer them. I love, I love how the, the, you know, the angels of the Bible tend to do that with humanity. You know, um, you know, so what, what's this role that you see? Man, I don't know. Uh, well, he explains, you know, in verse three, this is the curse that goes forth over the face of the earth. Um, that's, that's something you and I can do. Example, have you ever been at work with someone and they're, they're talking about the Middle East conflict and you, you, can, you can say something, hey, why do the Iranians hate the Jews so much? Like, why would they, like, what have the Jews ever done to the Iranians uh, and why do they hate them? I don't know, man. Well, let me tell you, the Bible actually tells us this. 
you know, you're asking the question uh, and, and you also have to have the answer. And that is, well, actually, as it turns out, the Bible talks about how Iran, which is ancient Persia, will turn against the Jews. That's something God predicted that would happen in the last days. And so when there's no explanation really, and you can't understand why do these people hate the Jews so much? And why does the world hate the Jews? Bible said that was gonna happen. And that's just fulfilling what the Bible says in prophecy. And some people will uh, think you're wacko. Welcome to the club. Others, if they take even half a second to look into it and realize, you mean the Bible's predicted everything that's going on in the Middle East right now? Pretty much. It's in fact, it's uncanny point for point what's happening in the Middle East right now is setting the stage for the Gog Magog invasion, which is uh, a confederation of nations, uh, Iran, Turkey, Russia, and some others that are gonna come against Israel. And, and man, there starts an interesting conversation when you see what Russia's doing right now on the northern border of Israel. Um, and they're uh, in the middle of a war in Ukraine while they're also putting more and more troops on the northern border of Israel. This is something we should be noticing. This is why the Bible says, don't be ignorant of the times and the seasons we're living in. But all that to say, um, you know, you're able to teach people by asking questions. You know, what is, what are, what, what's going on with this flying scroll? And, and Zachariah's like, I don't have any idea. Well, let me tell you. And so he tells us um, the scroll, uh, there's a couple things on it. Um, he says, uh, I see this scroll, it's a huge scroll. Uh, and he, he says, this is the curse, the curse that goeth forth over the face of the earth. Now you're saying, Brad, if this scroll is the word, how is the word a curse? Well, the word curse there in the Bible is one that uh, can be kind of confusing for some of us. But, um, but uh, as it turns out, um, the curse is the curse of sin. And that's what the Bible reveals to us. When you read the Bible, one of the things the Bible does is it sort of pins you down, uh, pins you down with sin. And, um, and, and this, is, this is what's kind of being talked about. And here's a little bit of a, a strange language that the Jews would have recognized. Um, the Jews have different ways of thinking about things and they have a different kind of reasoning, logic and stuff. And it, it's really quite powerful when you realize uh, historically, why are some of the Jews so inventive and so smart? Um, it has to do with the way they think through stuff, but it, it, it uh, makes us kind of go, what are they talking about when we read the Bible? For example, why are the two sins of the, scr the scroll here um, basically swearing and, and uh, you know, being a thief? Uh, what's, the, what's the deal with those two things? Well, as it turns out with the 10 commandments, um, you know, the two tables of stone, um, it's, it's like what's being said here is on the one table, it ends with, you know, the one thing, the cursing uh, and the swearing, and then uh, the next thing, thieving, and then everything after that. So it's almost like, um, like we would say everything, you know, uh, between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, or pardon me, uh, New York and San Francisco, we'd say, well, that's kind of the whole country. Um, in the same way, they're saying cursing and swearing. It's not that uh, curse, cursing and swearing and, and thievery are the two uh, unpardonable sins. They're basically saying, and everything else included, uh, because they're saying whatever's on the two tables of stone uh, of the 10 commandments. Um, Jesus told us a little differently, by the way. Remember when they say, what are the most important, you know, what's the most important commandment? And, um, and Jesus would say, love, love God and love people. Uh, that, that, that was the answer. And he said, of all the law and prophet hang on these two, he said. But the Jews sort of had an idiom back in Zechariah's time 
basically that's this language about the one who everyone that sweareth shall be cut off as, it, as on that side according to it. Um, and look at the first part of verse three, for everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it. In other words, according to the, what was written in the scroll, uh, the indictments against humanity of all sin, it's almost like, uh, you know, swearing and thievery and everything in between and everything on the other side, all the sins. Are you guys with me on that? So it's basically the indictment of sin on all of humanity, which is the curse. Are, we, are you guys good about this? The sin is the curse. And we're all cursed with sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we were born sinners into that curse. That's the idea of this word curse. Um, so um, now, uh, there's, there's a few things about this. Um, uh, one thing you see here that's not as clear, but it's written on both sides. Like I mentioned, it's a scroll that has been written on both sides. Um, and um, what does the Lord say? He says in verse four, I will bring it forth, uh, saith Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief. Remember, that's one of the sins, thievery. And in the house of him that sweareth, that's the swearer, and everything in between is the idea. Um, the, the scroll is gonna enter in, and it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Okay, so the scroll comes and wipes out the person who's cursed with sin. Uh, does that scare anybody? Does that make anybody uneasy? Uh, well, as it turns out, that's what the word of God does. It, it does directly put the curse of sin on humanity. Um, and that's one of the things we have to remember. Now, um, um, by the way, when Jesus comes back with 10,000s of his saints, they're at the end of the tribulation, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the second coming of Christ. Does anybody remember what's coming out of his mouth as he's coming in the in imagery? A double-edged sword. It's the word of God that's gonna indict the world that's there that remains of their sins. And that's gonna be the wrath of God on them. Who's gonna be coming with Christ? Us, 10,000s of his saints. And the Bible tells us that we are not under, under curse, but we are arrayed in fine white linen. How did we get that? Well, I'm just giving you a little relief valve right now because we're, we're under the curse of sin initially, but the scroll, there's, a, there's some good news. Now, now, this is where you take this imagery of the scroll and you wonder what it's about. It's a double-sided scroll. Where else do we see that? Would you flip over to Revelation chapter five? I'm gonna have to resist going in depth on this one because I love this chapter and it's tempting. Um, but here we have a scroll um, and I believe it's the same scroll. It's the same scroll with all of human's requirements written on it, the requirements to be uh, freed up from the curse, if you would. And it's a, it's a scroll that is, um, get, we get a little more definition of this one. This is what we might call the scroll that is the title deed to planet Earth, which I also believe is the word of God. The word of God is sort of the document that tells us about what's required for ownership, what's required for salvation, what's required for the earth to go and move and for us to live and breathe. It's the requirements, if you would. And so that's why this story in Revelation 5 becomes so amazing. John, in his revelation, he um, you know, gets taken up into heaven in, in chapter four, caught up is the word there. Um, uh, and um, in verse one of chapter five, what does he see? This is where the drama in heaven starts to really unfold. This is all future. 
in, in Revelation 5, it says, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Um, this is a scroll. Uh, Brad, is it a book, a roll, or a scroll? It's a scroll. Uh, understand this. And it's written on both sides and it's got seven seals. Now let's talk about that. What, what, don't picture just seven seals in a row. Picture when you're unrolling, you have to break a seal to get it unrolled to a certain place. And then there's another seal. You have to kind of crack that one and then open up further than that. And, and there's seven of these seals. Now, why would somebody uh, put seals intermittently through the scroll? It had to do with sort of, um, you know, the requirements for something. Like if you were to take possession of a house and you had certain things you were supposed to do, let's just be kind of weird for a second. Let's say you're, buy, you're, you're buying a house, but before you buy the house, the owner has to replace the roof because there's holes in it. So seal number one, uh, gotta seal the, you know, re-roof your house before I can pay this money and buy the house. And then seal number two, you also have to fix the toilet because it doesn't work. Seal number three, like you, there's things they gotta do. And once they can break open all those seals and do it, then that you, you take uh, ownership of the house. Are you guys with me on that? That's why it's an interesting thing, the way this scroll is described here. It's like a title deed with seven requirements. And there's only, it's gotta be the right person who can fill those requirements or else the scroll can't be opened. That's the idea here. So uh, this scroll is written on both sides with seven seals. Verse two, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Uh-oh. The title deed to planet earth, no one can open it. Not one man, not even Elon Musk who can buy Twitter. <laughs> no man. Uh, and John starts to go, oh no. In this vision, he's like, what's gonna happen? I don't know. He freaks out. So it says here, um, you know, verse three, no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither look thereon. So he's just there bawling his eyes out thinking, man, the earth is lost. Humanity is lost because no one's worthy to open up those seals of the title deed to planet earth. But then one of the elders, verse five, said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Man, that's a glorious verse right there. And uh, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? That's Jesus, a descendant of the tribe of Judah, um, but also a lineage of David. Like this is a great title of the Lord. And verse, uh, verse six, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, verse six, um, and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders uh, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Isn't that interesting that John sees Jesus as the lamb that had been slain on the cross? Um, check this out. This is Zechariah language. Lamb had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God and, and sent forth in all the earth. Do you remember? We saw that in Zechariah chapter three, verse nine, the seven uh, eyes, remember this? We're talking about the same person here. Uh, there's a link. Um, and verse seven, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne and when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and hath redeemed us 
to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth. And then in chapter six, he starts to crack open the seals and that's the requirements and the requirements are gonna be poured out during the tribulation period. Uh, the seven seals are gonna deal with the seven major judgments. And after seven seals, there's some trumpets and some bowls of wrath and it gets kind of crazier from there. But all that to say, this is the same scroll that is the one that indicts us as humanity that, that we can't fill, that we, we are toast. If we're under the law of that scroll, we're gonna be in big trouble. So there in Revelation, you know, we see a scroll written on both sides, a legal document, document titled Deed to Planet Earth. Um, only Jesus could open it. Um, and uh, and I, I want you to remember that, by the way, because there's some Christians that believe that somehow we're gonna save the world by electing the right person. Um, that's not gonna happen. The only person who's gonna really set this world straight uh, is Jesus. Now, that's not to say that we should be stupid and not vote. We live in a country where we get to vote and we get to steer who is in office. And, and you know, uh, um, but don't, don't put your hopes in somebody to save the world or save us. Um, really, only Jesus is the one. But, um, but all that to say, that, that is coming. Um, and, um, and Jesus can open the scroll. Uh, um, all that to say, back to Zechariah. This, this is that same scroll that we're reading about. Zechariah's time before Jesus was even on the scene, what you see is only the bad side of the scroll, uh, the indictments, if you would. That's all we see here in chapter five of Zechariah, the, the sins, or, or as it's called, the curse. Um, uh, only to the swearers and those who steal, the thieves, um, the, the, you know, uh, but basically <clears throat> all the sins. Now, by the way, uh, the curse is sin. Um, and the scroll consumes and uh, takes over um, uh, the, the house of the person who's the sinner. Verse four, um, it says, uh, the scroll uh, will bring it forth, say the Lord of hosts, and enter into the house of the thief, into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with timber thereof and the stones thereof. Now, you say, what's that all about? Why is the scroll consuming? Remember, we're seeing the curse side of the scroll and what happens to the sinner, the thief, the swearer, and all in between, all the sins in between. And there's utter destruction. The, um, the, the language here would have been reflective for the Jews because there was a specific law where they were supposed to burn the timber and the stones of a person's house. That was the language of the Bible, the Levitical law in a specific situation. Does anybody remember what that specific situation is? Yes, leprosy. Um, jot this down in your notes if you want to. The cleansing of the house of leprosy was Leviticus chapter 14. And we're not gonna go back there because it's a long section. Verses 33 through 57 of Leviticus 14. Um, leprosy was that loathsome disease. They had no cure. Um, it was the COVID of the day, but actually worse uh, and real. Um, and it was, um, sorry, just, I should have said that. Uh, I got COVID. I have friends. I don't, don't get so many letters. Um, <laughs> Uh, I get it, but it wasn't as bad as everybody said it was gonna be. Anyway, <laughs> leprosy was really bad. And leprosy is a picture, a type of sin, right? Sin, leprosy is always pictured as sin. So um, one of the things you had to do is cleanse out leprosy, just like you had to cleanse out um, uh, leaven, 
Remember leaven of the, of the bread? They had to cleanse out the leaven. Leaven is a type of sin. Leprosy is a type of sin. Um, and the scroll comes to destroy this house in a way you destroy, destroy the leprous house. The same language. Um, and that's kind of an important thing to, to see and know. Um, so, so back to this vision, we, we basically see, um, <clears throat> you know, that in that scroll would be a list of our sins or the people of the Old Testament, Zachariah's time. The good news for you and I, uh, because we live in the dispensation of grace. We're not under the law of the Old Testament, but we live in a time where we, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And he paid the price, redeemed us from the, the laws of sin and death that were written on the scroll. So the curse, the curse is no longer on us. And that's beautiful. Let me, let me go over some of that. Isaiah 43, uh, verse 25. Uh, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. I love that. Now, th there will be those who reject Jesus, uh, the living word, the scroll, um, but they'll be crushed by, by the same scroll. See, the scroll will either bring you salvation or it'll bring you death. It kind of reminds me of the um, an analogy of Jesus, the rock. When I say Jesus is the rock, does that make you happy or does that scare you? It depends on who you are. If you're a Christian, he's our rock, our sure foundation. The wise man builds his house on the rock. Foolish man builds his house on the sand. And the Bible talks about that, the rock. But Peter talks about how the rock, Jesus, is also the rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. Um, the gospel writers talk about Jesus, you know, about how he will become the stone that crushes. Um, and, and there's this kind of idea, you'll be broken before the stone or you'll be crushed by the stone. One, or, one of two is the options there. So the stone can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective. Remember Daniel chapter two, a stone cut without hands, cut out of the mountain, comes tumbling down and smashes the nations of the world. That's when Christ returns. He's gonna come and smash the nations, the kingdoms of the world that have rejected Jesus, the Messiah. The rock, you'll either be broken before it and repent or you'll be crushed by it. Same thing with the scroll. The scroll is good news for the believer um, or it's your indictment against you that dooms you to death and destruction. Uh, it just depends on your perspective. So uh, the scroll speaks of wrath and judgment for those who reject the Lord. Um, and that's what we're seeing here. That's why it's called the curse there in verse three. Um, link that word curse, by the way, um, to uh, what the Bible says uh, throughout the Bible about the curse. In fact, Galatians chapter three, verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's the scroll. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That's an Old Testament passage uh, that tells us that Jesus is the one who became a curse for us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 um, puts it this way. For he, the Lord, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What, did he sin? Some people try to say Jesus sinned. He didn't. He, he who knew no sin became sin because he took all of our sins upon us um, and died once for all on the cross. And that's why when Jesus died, he said, it is finished, the finished work of salvation. So the vision of the flying scroll, I know it's a little crazy, uh, but it's apart, um, basically apart from the cross, this, this scroll would still be horrifying to you and me. 
Uh, it'd be this massive indictment coming towards you saying, I'm gonna crush you and clean out your house of sin. But good news, Christ became sin on our behalf, protecting us. So the word of God is not a sword that's gonna hack us up. The word of God becomes the sword of the spirit that defends us. Uh, you see the difference there? I love the transition. Once you accept Christ, the rock becomes a foundation rather than a crusher. Um, the scroll becomes good news uh, instead of the indictment against you. All of these things are changed when you get on the right side of the scroll is kind of the idea. Um, by the way, the Jews to this day don't believe in the New Testament. They just believe in the Hebrew Bible. So they're stuck with Zechariah right here, Zechariah 5. Can you imagine that? See, if I just had Zechariah 5 here, these verses one through four, and you didn't have the New Testament, I'd be horrified. Um, and I'm gonna say, I've met Jews in Jerusalem that kind of are horrified, and I'll tell you why. Because a good Jew, and I, I've met lots of them, I remember talking at the Temple Institute with this young girl, um, and we were, she was, she was the, kind of the tour guide of the Temple Institute. This is the group that wants to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they have everything they need to do it. Uh, even the gold, they have all, billions of dollars worth of gold ready to roll to make the candlestick and all the other gold things for the new temple in the, Jerusalem. That's what they want to build. I believe it's possible they're the ones that'll be ready to roll when the time comes to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but I was talking to this girl because uh, I wanted to kind of get her sense of, you know, because here's the problem. If you're a Jew, how do you deal with your sin? And I even asked her, so as a Jew, you know, how do, this, how do the Jews deal with sin? And I kind of knew what the answer is going to be. She says, well, it's um, the Jewish sacrificial system of, all, you know, the altar and and the priesthood, and that's why we're wanting to rebuild the temple and get it, this worship back up and running so that the Jews can worship the way we've always been meant to worship. I said, yes, that's great, but what do you do in the meantime? Like right now there is no temple and there hasn't been one for several thousand years. What do you, what do, you do about sin right now? And, and, and it was interesting because her and her friends were there kind of, they sort of blush and they sort of hem and haw and they say, well, we pray you know, for our sins and stuff like that. And, and um, and it's funny because I, I know the awkwardness there because they also know that prayer is not, that just the Jew praying about their sins, that doesn't, that doesn't help. That doesn't do it. There must be the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The Jews know this. So the idea of, well, we're just saying some prayers, it's like they're trying to sort of kick the can down the road and say, well, I hope we can get a temple here pretty soon because we're sort of in trouble right now without a temple. Doctrinally, that's kind of what the, the religious Jews have to be up against. So you're still stuck with this heavy scroll of Zechariah 5 with no answer to it. But you and I have the answer, oh, blessed is he, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah who came and was worthy to open up the scroll uh, and, and cause the curse of sin to be put upon himself instead of us. And that's the glorious truth. And, and by the way, helping the Jews to see that the, the, the New Testament, and, and this, is, this is something that'll really be helpful if you're talking to your Jewish friends. The big mistake Christians make, and, and I'm gonna say the replacement theology people are the worst at this. Um, they have the narrative, well, Christianity's replaced Judaism. Um, and that's what, that's what most Jews think Christianity is, a replacement because of the way we've presented it. But the better truth is Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism. Like Judaism is, is being fulfilled through, the, through a Jew, Jesus was very Jewish. And Jesus didn't do away with the law, he actually kept, away, kept the law perfectly. 
And Jesus would be the one who would be able to be the lamb that was required for the Jewish sacrificial system. Like, like it's, it's exactly the continuation of Judaism. So it's not like Judaism ceases and is no longer important, no. But if you're just living in Judaism right now, you're still lost. You gotta carry it out as, as the, the Hebrew Bible foretells. And so when you show a Jew the scroll, Zechariah 5, and you show that that scroll is opened by Jesus, the Messiah, who was a Jew, who died on the cross, shed his blood, and that's the sacrificial blood, Jesus. That's why when Jesus came, John the Baptist, a Jew, said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If we can present it to our Jewish friends more as, well, look at how the Bible uh, you know, as we look at it, the, and, and when we call it the Old Testament and the New, it, it also turns the Jews off. And the Jews are like, oh, the old washed up has been our Bible. And then you Christians have your new improved, uh, you know, and they almost look like we've uh, sort of added to the Holy Scriptures with our New Testament. And we say old and new. And, and what we mean is the Old Testament's older and the New Testament's newer. That's what we mean when we say that. But it sort of also has a connotation of saying, new and proved, better religion than the old Jewish way. No. And then you got Andy Stanley and pastors going around saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Dumb. Don't listen to those preachers that, you know, blow off the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament, it's called the Bible. Uh, you don't blow off any part of the Bible ever. Um, and that's something that I am not uh, um, for at all is uh, we, we gotta go through the whole Bible. Well, anyway, I got way off on a tangent there, sorry. Uh, anyways, um, so all that to say, uh, the Jews don't believe in the New Testament, but, but um, ask a Jew, are, how are you forgiven for your sins? And then you can show them how the Bible, the Old Testament, or you might call it the Hebrew Bible, uh, if you're talking to a Jew. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, it says, and then uh, you can talk about what the Hebrew Bible says. And, and if you know your Old Testament, you, you know, Jesus is totally spoken of in the Hebrew Bible. You know, the whole, um, it's interesting because Jesus, when he talked to those two dudes on the road to Emmaus, he explained to them everything about himself using the Bible. And that time, at that time, it was the Hebrew Bible. And he explained everything in the Old Testament as it related to himself. That's what you and I should do when we talk to our Jewish friends. Show them in their Hebrew Bible, uh, Jesus the Messiah. It's so great. Well, all that to say, uh, we got this flying scroll, uh, the forgiveness of sin only coming through Jesus. Now, review, we have um, the, the vision of the rider in the myrtle trees, the four horns, the measuring line, God's courtroom, olive trees, candlestick, the flying scroll, vision number seven. Are you guys ready for this? Hold on to your hats. You have the vision of the ephah and a talent. <laughs> ephah and a talent. Uh, what is an ephah? Um, well, an ephah is a unit of measure. Um, it's the largest dry unit of commercial measurement at the time. Um, and it was measured uh, in units of baskets. Uh, oftentimes they called the uh, ephah measurement a basket. And it was, a, it was a basket that they made of a specific size that would actually carry a certain uh, unit of measure. Uh, I've got a couple pictures and there's some interesting stuff about this ephah thing. This is like a, a fancy picture of an ephah uh, basket. Um, did you know that they recently found one of these uh, at Qumran? Uh, I take our groups there. That's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in one of the caves of the Qumran, they recently found this, uh, this is an ephah basket um, that was a measuring unit uh, where you could, um, 
Uh, you would see these around to measure certain grains and wheats and barleys. And if you got a ifa, you knew how much you were supposed to pay for and you'd take that, put that on your donkey and head home. So what's, what's he gonna see here? He's gonna see an ifa and a talent. What's a talent? Um, it's a unit of weight. Uh, and there's big debate on how heavy a talent is. Uh, minimally, it's 75 pounds. Uh, some, some scholars believe it's 97 pounds, others say it's 100 pounds. Uh, they've found um, counterweights for scales, uh, like large scales where they would weigh things. And the counterweights that, that they found, uh, uh, most of them were around 75 pound uh, counterweights that were called a talent. Um, that's interesting when you read the story about David when he became king, do you remember how heavy his crown was? Anybody? A talent. Can you imagine like neck compression, man, when they stuck that crown on his head, like uh, he, that was a heavy crown. But, but remember, he had, there was gold in them in their hills there in J Judah. So they had all that. Well, anyway, all that to say, you got the ephah, which is a basket, and you have a talent, which is a weight, and that's gonna help you with this idea of the vision of an ephah and a talent. Let's read. So it goes on in verse five. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth? And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this, uh, the, so the lid was made of lead and it was a talent in weight. So a hundred pound lid over a basket. Um, uh, does that sound like a pleasant situation? Uh, lifting a, a hundred pound lid off of a basket, like that just doesn't work. That sounds, that sounds sketchy to me, especially when you find out what's in it. So they lift up the lid and um, it says, behold, they lifted the town of the lid and this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. So we have a basket case inside this, uh, this, this um, <laughs> sorry. You'll see what I mean as I, I'm, I'm not joking. Um, verse eight, and he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah. And he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. So there's a woman in there. And he said, this is wickedness. And he throws the lid back on the top um, of the mouth thereof. And then verse nine, lifted up by mine eyes and looked and behold, there came out two women and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up, um, it says here, the ephah between the earth and heaven. Um, by the way, um, have you ever noticed how much uh, Portland area here and, and really in the world is into this whole goddess thing? And uh, be careful, uh, ladies, because there's this sort of lure about talking about the goddess within you. And, and it's this whole thing of wings and everybody gets their pictures with wings and stuff. It's like, oh, that's so awesome, I have wings. But there's actually a new age origin of that. And that's why Portland and some of the weirder places around the, uh, the planet have the wing thing. And, and it's kind of a thing. I'm just telling you girls, be careful, watch out, because it's a very subtle thing, uh, you know, in trying to celebrate great womanhood uh, in sort of a carnal, godless way. Um, there's some imagery there you should be aware of. Now this, this you say, but Brett, these are women with wings. This must be good, right? Well, it's not good. Uh, and there's some things here that make these wings not a beautiful thing. Uh, you picture the painting on the wall where you can get your picture and the beautiful wings. These are storks' wings. 
And um, does anybody know what's, uh, to a Jew, what would be the first thing they'd think of when, when they hear about the word stork? See, that's what an American would think, babies. <laughs> the stork brings the babies. No, that's not what the Jews would have thought. What would they have think, anybody? Unclean. That's what the Jew would have seen. They wouldn't have seen a baby with a diaper and all that stuff. They would have said, that's an unclean bird. You don't even go near that bird. You don't touch that bird. That's an evil, dirty bird, okay? You gotta understand that. That's, that's, that's because of the Levitical law. The, the stork was an unclean bird. So you got these women carrying this basket with a woman inside of it with a lead lid on top. You see what I mean about the pizza the night before? Uh, this Zachariah vision is getting weirder and weirder. Uh, and then the, the basket lifts, gets lifted up by these two women with stork wings and between heaven and earth. Then verse 10, I uh, said I to the angel that talked with me, whither do these bear the ephah? In other words, why are these two uh, women bearing, you know, flying away with this basket? Verse 11, and he said to me, to build it an house in the land of Shinar and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Anybody know another name for Shinar? Babylon, yes, Babylon. Okay, now you've got some hints if you know your other Bible prophecy, right? If we're talking about a woman in Babylon, does anybody remember where you read stuff about that? Revelation 17, this is where Zechariah and Revelation again are gonna match up kind of perfectly. In fact, why don't you flip over there real quick, Revelation 17. There's, a, there's another image, and I believe it's the same woman as the one in the basket. Um, notice this woman was, is take, being taken for a ride. Would you agree? She's in a basket. She's being taken for a ride by some evil. See, these, these women are probably demonic entities or even um, fallen angels, if you would, with these wings of stork wings. And we know it's evil because of the connotation of the storks and all that stuff. But... Um, so it's a bad scene. You got a basket with a lead lid. Everything's kind of ugly, just like the imagery here of Revelation. Um, even as this woman in Zechariah 5 is being taken for a ride, this woman is riding a beast here in chapter 17. But we're gonna notice she thinks she's riding the beast, but she's actually being taken for a ride. What do you mean? Well, let's read Revelation 17, 1. There came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee great the great judgments of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Does anybody remember what many waters is? Nations, and we know that for sure from verse uh, chapter um, 17, by the way, um, right there in verse 15. Look at verse 15 of the same chapter. He saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest where the, where the whore sits were the people and multitudes and nations and tongues. So there's, there's a self-interpretation right there in the chapter. So we're talking about this great whore that's riding this beast. Um, and it says that sits upon all the nations. Um, now I'm just gonna fast forward and tell you what this is all about. We're talking about religious Babylon. Shinar is the word in Zechariah. Um, and in chapter 17 is religious Babylon. Chapter 18 talks about economic uh, Babylon or financial Babylon. And, and um, it's the end times during the tribulation uh, when the mark of the beast is gonna be engaged and there's a religious system that's in place. Um, and this religious system is sort of represented by mystery Babylon and this horror that's riding this beast, the religious system. Brett, I thought we're all raptured. Can you imagine when the rapture of the church happens, what's gonna be left behind with religion? 
there's gonna be a lot left. There's gonna be a lot left and there's gonna be wealth and money. Um, there's entire denominations that are worth billions and billions and billions of dollars that I think a lot of those people probably won't even be raptured because they think they're believers, but they're not. And anything that's not raptured, there's gonna be a sort of an ecumenicalism or a syncretism of a melding of a religious system together. And as it turns out, the, the Antichrist is gonna sort of play around with that and sort of, I'm gonna say, tolerate and even use that religious system for a while. Um, and that's kind of what this is talking about, this religious Babylon that's gonna happen uh, during the tribulation period. So verse two, it says, that, you know, the, the, sits on the many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Um, and then the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. Um, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Man, we could talk about the history of the church uh, and we'll see all these images, part of the religious system that's left after the rapture of the church, but I won't get into that. Verse five, and upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The word admiration is an unfortunate uh, translation there. The idea is astonishment because uh, the whoredom, you know, the whoredoms and the horrible things she's gonna do. You say, Brett, how is she gonna kill the saints, the martyrs? Well, remember there's tribulation saints that are gonna be beheaded during that time. Uh, people that didn't get raptured, that accept Christ, and they're gonna be called the tribulation saints. And there's, there's, she's gonna be the very one part of the killing of those people. Um, by the way, do you guys sense a hostility that we've never seen in our lifetime toward Christianity today? Um, this whole abortion argument right now, we're seeing people basically saying, Christians are the problem. Like it's really an amazing thing. I've never seen it quite, it's on the news, MSNBC. Like if you watch MSNBC, which I don't really recommend, but if you do, you're gonna hear them say, you know, the Christians are the problem here, you know, Christian. And it's, it's amazing, it's, you can almost get the sense that they wanna throw us back into the gladiator rear, the throw, throw us to the lions kind of thing again. Uh, they'd be perfectly content to do that. Don't be surprised as that ramps up because that will happen in the tribulation period. There will be a hatred for people who love Jesus, the, the, the tribulation saints who get saved after we're raptured and they're gonna be beheaded for the cause of Christ during that time. And that's this woman drunk with the blood of the martyrs. That's what we're talking about. Now you say, Brad, I'm confused. What's, what's this woman about? Well, it sounds like Zechariah in the sense that we got this woman and it's the same woman basically, um, two different dreams or visions or images. The scarlet beast in verse three here is the antichrist. Um, and and um, you know all that that's left after this woman and false religious system, everyone will be under this uh, political religious tone of the woman who rides the beast. Now, this woman who's riding the beast, she actually is being taken for a ride and she ends up getting eaten up by the beast. The beast devours her and eats her up, which is gonna happen uh, um, when the abomination of desolation happens, whole nother story. But um, all that to say, what's the correlation here? Um, we have the description of the destruction 
of Babylon uh, and, and Shinar, as it's called there. In, and, and Babylon is going down, religious and economic Babylon. Here's the thing, and this has caused uh, quite a few uh, questions and concerns. When we talk about Babylon in the end times, are we talking about literal rebuilding of Babylon? Or are we talking about the notion that was behind the Babylon, which starts with Nimrod, Tower of Babel, Semiramis, Tammuz, false religious system that came out of that that still is today, you see uh, elements of that. Um, which one is it? Is it literal Babylon or, or figurative? The answer, I don't know. Um, and there's people that debate and good, good people that debate one way or the other. Um, here's the thing though, I, I, I have an opinion, but it, I don't think we have time to talk about it as much tonight. But if you're curious, if the Lord should tarry, um, in other words, if the rapture of the church doesn't happen in the next 10, 50, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, whatever, um, I think he will come. I think the rapture could happen tomorrow. It, it's possible. But if it doesn't, I could see a scenario where more of a literal Babylon is rebuilt. And there's actually a thing that's sort of stirring about that. Um, and it's, it's that part of Iraq. It's like 50, 60 miles outside of uh, Baghdad. Um, which was ancient Babylon. And um, back when old Saddam Hussein was there, remember that before we hung him? Um, he was rebuilding Babylon. He was trying to make it all fancy and palaces and stuff. And he considered himself the, the new Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and some of us Bible prophecy guys are like, oh, this is interesting that he's trying to rebuild Babylon. Um, but when he was killed, all that stuff sat in ruin. And I, I, some of our Athe Creek military had actually uh, served in Iraq. They went and they, they were right there where uh, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon. They actually were uh, positioned there for a while. And they sent me pictures of the Babylonian palaces that, Neb, that uh, old Saddam Hussein was building. So some of us at that time were, I wonder if he's gonna rebuild Babylon. And it would make sense with the Bible. But when he died or was killed, that all kind of stopped. Um, so then it made us wonder, well, maybe that's not gonna happen. Is it gonna be literal? Is it gonna be figurative? Some people think that Babylon is New York City. I can see that. Or Portland, uh, I can see an argument for that. Or maybe it's more of the notion behind the religious and economic Babylon that started in ancient, uh, you know, ba Shinar or whatever. Um, but if the Lord should tarry, I can see a literal rebuilding of Babylon. And I'll tell you a quick argument as to why I think that's possible even though I would, never, I would never say, don't think the Lord's gonna delay his coming. The rapture of the church can happen tomorrow. And if that happens tomorrow, then I think the Babylon that's talked about in Revelation is definitely more of a figurative mentioning of that. But if the Lord tarries, the reason why is because all throughout the Bible, there's, a, there's actually pairs in the Bible um, that talk about the destruction of Babylon, as it turns out. Um, in Isaiah 13, uh, and Isaiah 14 is a pair of the destruction of Babylon. Um, and I was gonna have you turn there, but we're out of time, so I'm not gonna. Just write it down in your notes. But if you read Isaiah 13, it talks about the total utter destruction of Babylon. Jeremiah 50 and 51, the destruction of Babylon. Revelation 17 and 18, the destruction of Babylon. And it sounds very literal to me, honestly, when you read it. So um, you say, well, Brett, wasn't the Babylonian empire de uh, destroyed? back in 539 when the Medes and the Persians came? Well, the answer is no. Was Babylon destroyed? Not in the way Isaiah, Revelation, Jeremiah talks. It talks about how, in fact, the, the, um, Isaiah talks about how it'll be destroyed even as Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, where it was just like a smoldering heap, 
nothing to be there. Is that what happened when the Medes and the Persians destroyed Babylon? They didn't destroy it. Do you remember the Babylonians didn't even know the Medes and Persians took over for over a month? Do you remember why? Because all the leaders of Babylon were in a party and the Medes and Persians snuck in in the water system, came up and killed all the leaders of Babylon in the party and just kind of did a quiet, hostile takeover of the city. And basically people were going about their lives like, well, who's our, what, what happened to our leaders? Like, well, I'm your new leader. Like, well, who are you? I'm, you know, Cyrus, the Mede, Darius, the Persian. And they're like, okay, whatever. Like, that's kind of how that went down historically. That's like, the, the, the city almost didn't even notice that they were taken over. That's an interesting part of history. Um, so I don't see any time in history where Babylon was destroyed at the level that the Bible says it was gonna be destroyed. So that's an interesting thing for you to chew on and think about. What does the Bible mean when it talks about Babylon? Is it a literal Babylon or more of a figurative? Um, you, you know, we could talk about that if we had more time. I'm not saying I'm solid on one way or the other on that one, but all that today, we've, we've, um, we've not really seen the full destruction of Babylon. Um, well, so back to the vision uh, of the ephah and the talent. Um, the woman in a basket is being flown to Shinar, Babylon. Uh, you say two lovely angels? No, two uh, demonic, ugly, unclean bird angels, probably demonic, are carrying this woman like the beast is carrying the woman in Revelation 17. And Antichrist will be playing along with this religious system and political movement um, ultimately swallowing up that religious movement at the abomination of desolation. So it's gonna be a brutal and bloody scene. Um, by the way, this whole ecumenical movement that we're seeing right now is setting the stage for the tribulation period. Um, have you seen this um, Abrahamic family house? There's a bunch of these going up around the world as far as ecumenicalism. But um, here's a little video clip I'll roll. Um, this is their concept. This is gonna open in, uh, sometime this year, 2022. But it's basically a place, one house for Christianity, Judaism, um, and Islam. And they're trying to bring all the faiths together. And they've got this glorious vision, you know, uh, to bring the world together and all this stuff. But, um, but this is all what the Antichrist is gonna use. He's gonna use this system and this kind of a syncretism, ecumenicalism that we're saying. And some of the evangelical church pastors are even starting to sort of talk in sort of an ecumenical way. Uh, you know, our, our, our brothers, the Muslims, and you know, treating them like they're just the same. That great, you know, George Bush, that great religion, you know, Islam, and, and he celebrated Ramadan. George Bush, W, celebrated Ramadan in the White House because he just didn't really see it as being something from Satan, even though it is. Um, that's kind of interesting. But anyway, I digress about all that. Zachariah's visions are getting more and more powerful and uh, speaking of the last days, the tribulation. These are the visions. Um, and vision number eight is the next one that we're gonna read about uh, here in chapter uh, six. And we're gonna have to pick that up, not tonight, but uh, stay tuned. We'll, we'll cover the next vision uh, next week. Lord, we, uh, we are impressed by how your word is so um, congruent. All the books of the Bible speaking of the same things and visions and dreams. And Lord, we see how you sort of locked these, these um, parts of prophecy throughout history. Even as Daniel was told, seal up the words of this book until the time of the end. But Lord, we're seeing an unsealing of these books and we're seeing the truths unfold. We're seeing the stage being set for these last days that Zachariah speaks of. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us 
as Christians today, Lord, give us the right mindset. Um, we, we know we're strangers in a strange land. We feel that more and more every day. We see the stage being set for the tribulation and for persecution of Christians. And we see that that could even happen maybe even before the tribulation ha- starts. Lord, would you just equip us with your word to know what we're to do as Christian people? Uh, we know what the world demands of us. We know what even other Christians demand, but I pray that your word would be the, the, um, the compass to show us which way is right and what to do. Lord, I pray that we'd, we live as Christians with salt and light, like your word says, that we wouldn't just be uh, secret closet Christians hiding away, trying to keep ourselves safe, but you told us to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Um, Lord, these are risky times for us. We see uh, it's starting to become more dangerous in our days to do that, but give us a boldness, Lord. I pray that we'd let our light shine before all men. Um, even if it costs us, Lord, I pray that we'd be ready to do that. So give us that boldness. Bless this, these your people tonight, both here and online tonight have joined us. I pray that they just sense your presence in their life and the, the hope of heaven that we have in front of us, Lord. Give us that joy, that peace that passes understanding, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.